I was really proud of you. You, with resounding kind of chorus, said good morning back to Abby when she read a minute ago. And usually it's like 1040 before there's any life in the room. So thank you guys for that. <clears throat> Let me welcome you today. Um, like, got a lot of good things going on. Today is the official kind of inauguration of uh, Orphan Sunday, which is kind of a two-week block that we take each, each, each year and talk through a little bit of this. And so we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, kind of in a very fitting way, we have a child dedication at the end of this. And so in a very awesome way, we get to highlight the importance of how God cares for, uh, for children in two very uh, important ways this morning. One is caring for the fatherless, the orphan. The other is giving thanks for the fact that there are still families in our world that desire to raise their children in a way that honors God. And so um, before we jump into that talk today, I want to just kind of mention a couple of quick things to you this morning. Uh, First, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. If you're a partner of Restoration, we're just as glad that you're here. If you have any questions about our church, you can let us know on those contact cards in your seats, and we'll do our best to follow up with you throughout the week to get you any information you'd like to know about us, your next steps with Jesus. If you showed up for Restoration Revealed this morning, I'm glad to see that it happened. We had a good crowd in the foyer. Fourth Sunday of every month, we get together, and we just kind of hang out there and drink coffee and and really try to socialize a little bit. If you've been with us for a season, you know that the theater is very tight on time margins because of the way that show is running here. And in fact, today, I need to apologize to you. Uh, We kind of had a a complete swap around. You've noticed everything's in different theaters today, and that's because of uh, Vin Diesel and his new movie that is running uh, next door. So on Sundays like this, we have to flex, and I'm thankful that you guys are flexible, but that shouldn't at all uh, damper kind of what we're going to talk about today. So last week, Lars, our pastoral resident, shared a message with you from Hebrews, and that was a great talk. Lars is, uh, is uh, committed to a three-year pastoral residency with us with the hope of there being a, an executive p- uh, pastor type of position at the end of it. And Lars raises his own support, which means he, his income is completely generated from outside of our church. And so uh, that is kind of what took place last week. Glad that we had him talk. For now, though, we're going to really drive right into these next two weeks with, with Orphan Sunday, super important things going on, and a value uh, of our church. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, If you're not, I'll take a moment to share with you. Our church is committed to a handful of very important things that we believe God has given us as a particular vision and set of values. Uh, The task of church planting is one of them. As far as particular nuances, the way God uh, has led us to express his gospel in the world, church planting, and caring for orphans, and that's a big one for us. So today we'll talk about the the importance, and really we'll set the stage for what we're going to talk about next week. We want to connect the dots between true worship and the biblical precedent for caring for the oppressed. And this is the time of the year where our attention is on the orphan. And so today's talk is a bit of a primer, you might consider, to bring some clarity to why restoration places such a high value on caring for orphans. Now, since Scripture is so clear that we are to care for the orphan, we have committed to providing a spiritual, emotional, financial, and educational support system for people in our church that want to adopt. And it is our genuine prayer, as we continue to grow, that we can grow in the way that we support each one of those categories. Adoptions are very important to my wife and I. We have done it. Uh, we have several families at the church that have been thinking and talking about it. And so it's neat to see some traction with this. And I'm glad because this type of an attitude, hard attitude for our church is important because in Scripture... Caring for the orphan is a major theme. For example, I'll give you two quick ones. James tells us a mark of true Christianity or true religion, preached on this a few years ago, is when a person genuinely begins to love and care for the helpless and the oppressed. And he kind of puts the cherry on the Sunday by talking about the orphan and the widow. So there he compares genuine faith in God with a heart to serve something just beyond ourselves, to care for those who have genuine need. 
in the same way that Jesus has loved and cared for us. So when we talk about caring for those that have need, right, this is a Jesus theology right here. The, the nature of the cross shows us that Jesus, with absolutely no obligation to care for us, he disadvantages himself to the point where he gives his life for us. So if ever we need to have a, a root of why this matters, why caring for those that, that have need, the marginalized, the oppressed, as Isaiah says, it's because this, in our New Testament terminology, Jesus did this for us. Our faith is rooted and built on this act, okay? Paul tells us in multiple places that adoption is at the heart of the gospel, and we have this idea of sonship and daughtership in God. We just sang about that, that God has adopted and redeemed us while we were literally spiritual orphans. And so today, we're studying a teaching that the prophet Isaiah gives us that shows us true worship must lead us to seek justice and do right. And I'm sitting down today because Isaiah is like using a blunt stick to get this point across. So hopefully my sitting makes this a little bit more of a tolerable message. I promise we'll get to grace and truth and all that good stuff on the back end. But I don't think we'll, we'll experience or really be able to appreciate the reality of the forgiveness that God talks about at the end of this, uh, this verse or this teaching until we actually understand what, what Israel at this point needed to be forgiven for. And so this is a pointed passage of Scripture that, again, connects these dots. I say this a lot, not because I don't have other things to say, but because this is a core element of who we are as a church, of who we are as as believers. Our belief in God is always validated by a genuine desire to want to obey God. You, you are not truly believing in or following God if there isn't a desire for obedience in your life. Now, that does not mean that life is perfect. That does not mean you, you, know, you flip the Jesus switch and then all of a sudden for the rest of your days you never make a mistake or err. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying over the course of our life, if we look back at our lives, we should be able to see, if we're truly in Jesus, a life that tried to honor God by obeying him. Belief leads to obedience, right? And in this case, in this particular passage, obedience is expressed in caring for those that are oppressed, the orphan and the widow, Isaiah says. On the inverse, okay, the other side of the fence, when a believer gets comfortable worshiping God without obeying God, this is the story of the Western church. This is one of the big ones anyways. When we get comfortable worshiping God without obeying God, Isaiah tells us they are heading for trouble. Okay, because they run the very high risk of having a faux faith in God. That's why he's, he's essentially listing all of these religious rituals that Israel is practicing. They are, they are supposed to be evidences of a genuine faith in God, but truly they're, they're evidences of a hollow faith in God. And that is exactly where Israel is in this passage. You've got Israel, right? God's covenant people who are set apart to embody God's grace and his goodness in the world. They are literally his people in the Old Testament world, meant to show the goodness and the glory of God to the world. They get to this place where they start loving the rituals of their worship. They love the temple and the culture that goes with it more than their faith. And then what happens is that they, they, the, the end result of this is that they start loving those things more than they love God, God himself. Now, this is a serious problem, and it leads us to the first, first truth that Isaiah points, to us, or points us to in this passage. And it's a pretty raw one. I'll just say it as he said it. God detests worship rooted in ritualistic religion. I, I can't really fudge this. He says it, so we'll say it this way. Isaiah 113. Let me refresh the, your minds here. He says, stop bringing me, speaking for God, stop bringing me meaningless offerings, right? Your incense is detestable to me. And this is the summary statement of why God was, was angry with his people. And in this passage, God is incredibly angry with his people. You know, we don't like to talk about that in the modern world, and and there's a place for anger. Uh, Obviously, it's connected to grace and truth and the other attributes of God. But here we see that, that God is angry with his people. And you do not have to be a biblical scholar to pick up on this. In verse 10, God compares Israel to the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are wiped off the face of the earth because they're filled with people. They, they, they're filled with people with one problematic attitude. It expressed itself in a lot of ways. But the root issue of Sodom and Gomorrah was that it was a, uh, it was a place or places that, that people, they just cared about themselves. 
there was uh, an attitude of selfishness in those cities. So selfish that people were willing to hurt and oppress other people to get what they wanted in life out of them without remorse. It's the exact opposite of what the gospel in the New Testament teaches us, right? They advantage self uh, by disadvantaging others. It's like the antithesis of who Jesus is and how he calls us to leave. Uh, to live. And so they're very, very far from God, these people. And Isaiah's opening words, his choice of words here are not random. There's a point to what he's trying to say. He's a prophet, and we know the prophets speak with pointed tongues of the Old Testament. So what he's trying to do here is to get the attention of God's wayward people, who just like Sodom and Gomorrah, following his comparison, they had totally walked away from the ways of God. And so I want you to think about the, pu- the purpose of this. It's really an opening remark that's meant to sting. Not sting to the, to the place of hurting or denigrating, but to really call the hearts of Israel to attention. And think of it like this. Let's say you had a close friend, okay? Maybe you knew them for a very long time. And something happened where you were deeply betrayed by them. And after the betrayal, you decided that you just couldn't be friends anymore. It was the, the relationship was so toxic that you would love them, right? But you, you couldn't be in continual relationship with them because it was just, there was too much of an abusive rhythm there. And so now if you sat that person down and you said, listen, uh, you know, we can't be friends anymore because of what's happened, that would be a hard thing to hear. You know, you, you betrayed me. It's not, it's not going to work anymore. We have to have distance. That's a painful thing to hear. However, if you were to sit somebody down and say something like, listen, we can't be friends anymore. I need you to get away from me because you're a Judas, right? That takes things to a whole new level. It, it evokes a kind of imagery that in our, in our world is it's archetypal imagery of betrayal. We kind of use the word, you don't even have to be a Christian to, to throw the word Judas around. It, it is synonymous with this idea of somebody who cannot be trusted. And so Sodom and Gomorrah has this same type of feel. And essentially what the prophet Isaiah is doing is he's, he's kind of trying to use a very strong analogy to describe a very dark place, a spiritual place, that Israel had gotten to in their walk with God. It's meant to wake them up and, and truly call them back to God's grace because they have abandoned uh, a, a significant element of their faith. And it's leading to improper action. They're, they're no longer obeying because they're not actually worshiping properly. Now, if you are a curious mind, and most of you are, this raises or should raise a pretty serious question. What is it that Israel does to merit God's anger like this? Why is God so angry? Well, Isaiah tells us that Israel chose to fill their lives with the rituals of religion rather than an authentic relationship with God. So that's what's happening here. They choose ritual over God. They choose the function or the form of religion. Um, they, they, They choose that and then they actually stop following God through that. Now, there's a deep irony in this, and this is where the math gets fuzzy on stuff like this, okay? Because on the outside, if you were on the outside looking in, Israel had all the appearances at this point in their history of a people who were faithfully following God. They observed and followed the temple practices with precision. Isaiah tells us that they had plenty of animals. He's essentially saying you got all the boxes checked. You got plenty of animals for, for temple offerings, for burnt offerings. Uh, they can make sacrifices uh, to God with the best of them. They are observing the Sabbath. They are attending all the appointed religious festivals. They are praying to God. They, they from the outside looking in, have mastered the motions of their religion. The only problem was that in the process, they missed truly knowing the God of their faith while they were observing all of the rituals. So they're looking down here at the rituals, and they're no longer actually seeing that, that these, these religious uh, rituals that were given to them in Leviticus, they were meant to actually lead them to God. They duped themselves into believing adherence to the ritual is what knowing and loving God was built on. And this is what Isaiah is speaking to and frankly against. In verse 13, he says, all these once meaningful acts, remember, these are by, by nature meaningful acts given to God's people by God. And Leviticus points all that out. 
However, they have become detestable to God at this point because they are meant to lead people to God's grace, but they have been reduced to a set of meaningless motions that are now driving people away from God and causing people to live in ways that are contrary to God's desire for their lives. And so God says to his people through Isaiah, the point of the prophet, genuine worship, if you want my Orzo 1-1 paraphrase here, genuine worship has never been about the motions. It's been about having me in your heart. The idea here is that God doesn't want you to love just the things of God. God wants you to love him. And then you will properly love the things of God, whatever they may be. In this case, the the, the practice of the temple. God wants us to love him more than the idea of loving him. Of, 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 uh, wants us to love him more than just the idea of loving him. And I want to give you an example of this, of ritualistic or, or meaningless motion worship. Since we're kind of talking about Orphan Sunday and adoption priming for next week, uh, most of you know that in 2012, my family and I adopted a child from China. It was, the, it was a long process, and we were thankful that God did it. We Skyped into you guys from overseas. You know, it was like 10.30 uh, p.m. there and 10.30 a.m. here, and it was just great sharing in that story or having you guys share in that story with us. And while we were over there, we were there for a little, a little over two weeks, we did all kinds of stuff, governmental stuff, paperwork, filling out this stuff, meeting with representatives, but there were also a couple of days where our assigned guide, we had a person who was taking us all over the city. We were in a city of 19 million people in the southern part of China, Guangzhou. We didn't know where we were going, so we were assigned a, a representative to help us see what was going on and know where to go. It translate for us. And so one day, our guides wanted to take us to a, a Buddhist temple, all right, and uh, on a sightseeing trip. And I am a big fan of religion, uh, religious history and culture. And so I thought this was going to be great to kind of get into their world. I'll explain this picture behind me in a moment and see what was going on. And so we, we went to this temple and toured the grounds that it was on. And upon arriving, our, gu- our guide told us that it was kind of customary and expected that we receive a blessing from the Buddhist monk at this temple. Now, before you think I, I compromised my faith, that was not my intention that day. I didn't want to offend anybody or get arrested for starting in in any Buddhist riot. We were there to adopt a child, not to convert China to to Christianity at that point. So I decided uh, really genuinely to honor our God's desire to do something nice for us. The gospel translation of this was that this guy felt like we were doing a good thing and he wanted to do something nice for us. So we paid him that mind and figured we would do it. And honestly, from both a religious and philosophical perspective, I was very interested in seeing this because I'd never actually observed, you know, an Asian faith in Asia. It was pretty pretty interesting to me. So we went into this open-air temple. These are actually the statues behind me in the temple, and we sat before these three images of the Buddha. It was a massive place, and so I go in, and we're asked to sit down and uh, take our shoes off. If you ever visit my house, I'm going to make you do the same thing, right? We get, we get down there, and shoes are off. I'm sitting down there, and I'm, these massive gold statues are in front of us, and it's very quiet, and then all of a sudden, this, this monk comes in, and he's in this ceremonial attire, and he begins to perform this, it's clearly a, a ritual for this religion, that he has performed a thousand times before. I mean, it, it was so mechanical that you could tell this was, it was his job to do this. And so he stands up and he sits down. He starts tapping on certain metal and wooden objects. Uh, he's doing all these things. He's much like the Buddha. He's moving his hands into these particular positions. I have no idea what this means, but obviously this has some kind of a ritualistic importance in the faith. And then he does this for like 20 minutes. And, and when he is done, I mean, he doesn't say hello. He doesn't say anything. He just stops. He turns around and, and he doesn't go back into the room he came out of. He goes into the corner of the temple and he sits down in this chair. And, and what happened next, I'm telling you, you cannot make this stuff up. Life's best stories are the ones you do not have to make up, right? He sits down, this guy dressed in this ancient attire in this ancient temple, and that sucker whips out an iPhone. 
and he sits down and he starts playing and messing around on it. Clearly he was playing Angry Birds because Candy Crush wasn't around in 2012, right? So he's on his iPhone doing his thing and then once he's over there, our guy asks us to stand up and he tells us, kind of adding a bit of insult to injury, he says, and now you guys have to make a donation uh, to the Buddha. You have to, you have to put some money in the pot. And I thought, well, can I just like rub his belly or something? Do I have to give you some money? But no, that wasn't the case. The custom was to give him money. So I put a couple of dollars uh, in the pot. And I thought, you know, I guess that's just the way life is. Even the monks got to pay for that expensive Verizon data plan overseas. I followed the rules and the rituals. I had my first touch with that, okay? Now, here's what I find interesting. Uh, religious culturally, philosophically, this whole thing was fascinating to me. It gave me a window into uh, a predominant world faith, an insight into it. But it also left me with a real sense of sorrow because I remembered feeling incredibly empty and thinking uh, about the contrast of how one connects to the God of that faith or supposed to connect to the God of that faith and how we are invited to connect to the God of, of our faith. Right Here, when you look at this and, and the beauty of the Christian faith, the way God wants to know us is that we don't have to go through rituals to know him. Uh, you know, in that faith, th- these people, the, the monk and then the money, had to convince the Buddha. The point of this was to try to convince the Buddha to do something nice for us. That's not how it works in the Christian faith. Rather, you know, we have Jesus. And look at the contrast. He comes to earth, and he gives his life for us. Not so that we can just have rituals, but so that we can genuinely know him and his Father in heaven. Right? His Father who loves us and cares for us deeply. Our Father who we sing about, he wants to walk with us and he wants to talk with us. He wants to know us and he wants to be known by us. It's not about ritual. It's about the fact that God wants to be in our lives and desires us to be in his. And this right here is why God is so angry with Israel. You have God himself speaking through his prophet, right? God comes to, he's he's working through his people on earth, and he's offering his covenant people an incredibly deep and personal relationship with him. And they are trading it for the impersonal routines of religion. And it sets God off his rocker. He uses words that we don't read a lot about. Detestable. You know, he's, he's at this place where he's, he's incredibly angry. They learn to love the things of God more than God himself. And there is really something that we in a New Testament paradigm can learn from this, from this error. Because we're all subjected to it. Making it anyways. In Christianity, we no longer have a, a temple culture, right? We don't practice those routines in the New Testament church. But we are prone to suffer from the same root issue, the same ritualistic problem. Paul warns of this in 2 Timothy 3.5 when he tells us to be cautious. It's one of my favorite teachings that he gives us. And it, it is essentially the parallel prophetic teaching in the New Testament that Isaiah gives. When he says, you know, guys, you've got to be careful of practicing what, what he calls a form of godliness. Uh, rituals and practices that look like they are pursuing God, but the heart is disconnected from them. That is what we run the risk of suffering from in the New Testament era. Right? Those who practice a form of godliness, they, they start deceiving themselves in the same way Israel did in this passage. And this problem is rampant in Western Christianity. And we have come to call it uh, cultural Christianity. That's kind of what we talk about it as. And let me explain just quickly what it is, if you've not ever been kind of introduced to this. In the era of the church, it can be very easy and tempting to replace a genuine love and followership of God, a genuine path of discipleship, this is a word we use here, very, very important word for us, following God, pursuing him with our minds, our hearts for the sake of his mission. It is very easy to trade that for ritual events, things like Sunday services, 
biblical morality, right? We have whole heresies that have developed from this. All the isms, God loves you because of what you do, right? No, we don't believe that. We, we know God loves us because of Jesus, and then Jesus changes our hearts so that we begin to do the things that God desires. You can see what happens when we begin to worship some of these expressions as opposed to the heart of the faith that is supposed to shape the expressions. Morality, community, and community groups, the greatest things that God gives us can often be the greatest things that lead us away from him. Bible studies, right? We can sit in rooms studying scripture, hearing the word, but never actually obeying the word. James cautions us about, against this. In the church planning world, church conferences and, and social events, there's no shortage of things that can really lead us to God or lead us away from God. It, it depends on how we approach them with our hearts. So just like in the days of the temple, we have this whole palette of religious options that God has given us to experience his grace. By nature, these are good things, but they can easily be disconnected from his grace. And when that happens, they are rendered useless religious motions. And so if we take anything away from Isaiah's opening rebuke in this, it should be this, that in the Christian faith, there is a deep connection between the weekend worship and and weekly living. Everything we do in here is meant to shape God's kingdom work out there. Our musical worship, our preaching, our communion, our child dedication, we commit to this in this room, but we will spend the rest of our days raising our children in Jesus. Our community groups, all of these things are good things. They are wonderful things. They deeply honor God. They help us to grow in our love for him and our love for each other. And that is why as a church family, we ask you to faithfully participate in these things. They are important. However, none of those things were ever supposed to supplant a genuine love for God. It's at that point that they become motions and not actually tools that God has given us to experience his grace more deeply. And so the bottom line in all this, when it comes to the rebuke that Isaiah gives, is that God didn't give Israel the temple or us the church so that we could simply have a place to practice religious rituals. In his grace, he gave us these things so we could learn to genuinely love him and live for him so that we could grow more deeply into the image of Jesus. He gave us the opportunity to worship him so that we could dwell on the goodness of God through these disciplines and experience real life change so that we are constantly being transformed into the image of Jesus. There is, a, there is an end game in what some of the forms, when they are connected to God of the faith, are supposed to produce in us. Studying scripture is supposed to you know, help us understand God more deeply. Praying connects us to the heart of God. Community is, is, is supposed to help us understand, at least in part, that we don't do this alone, that God has not just given us his grace and his presence, but he's given us each other. These can be forms if disconnected from the goodness of God. You see, our love and our worship of God was not meant to just become a form. It was meant to compel us to know God more deeply and to practice Christ-centered deeds. And this is what Isaiah goes on to say. He doesn't reference Jesus, but we'll get to Jesus because this is where this text is pointing. So we know the negative side of things. It's detestable, right? Meaningless worship, ritualistic worship. That's what God does not like. But we learn also that God loves our worship when it leads us to seek justice and, and to do right. God actually does love when we worship him properly. And Isaiah 1, 16 through 17 says this, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then for the rest of this chapter, at least for a substantial amount of verses, Isaiah then begins to tell them about God's grace. He says, listen, turn. He says, let God clean you. Let him make you white. You know, th- there's, there's the reality of the problem of Israel, but then there's also the reality of where there is great sin, there is great grace to come back to God. And so from a literary perspective, Isaiah just made a 180-degree turn. He literally, like, you know, popped a U-turn on the interstate. It's like we were driving down the highway at 90 miles an hour, talking about what God hates. That's where we just were. And then he hits the brakes, and he turns the car around to begin telling us how we can correct the problem by doing what, what God loves. 
And what God loves is for his people to turn away from their sin and towards his goodness. He loves it when we take advantage of these great promises he makes us, both Old and New Testament, that when we err, we go to him, we confess our sin, and we can receive his forgiveness and love. Sin and failure is not the end game in the Christian faith. It, it's, when it happens, there is a next step. And that step is to find grace and goodness in God. And so Isaiah says, essentially, we have to let God clean us of our sin. What he goes to talk about is that he says, you, you've got to give God the freedom to, to remold your hearts into what he wants them to be. When you recognize your heart is at a place with God where it doesn't belong, you've got to, you've got to let God know that because he already does know that. We, we know that. But the reality is, is then you have to have the, the, the gumption to say, okay, God, now, now remold me, re, remake me. And in this passage, the remaking is genuinely understanding what it means to not have a ritualistic worship, but to have a lifestyle of worship, which is, you know, we talked about this at length at the back end of Nehemiah. What he's saying here is the, the particular expression of worship in this passage has nothing to do with music. It has to do with God's people seeking justice in the places and circumstances of the world where there is none, particularly amongst the orphan and the widow, who James lets us know is they are the representative ambassadors of those who are in need. They are two incredibly vulnerable people groups that are not meant to cause us to forget about other vulnerable people groups. They're meant to highlight a specific issue, but to broaden our perspective on the fact that there is genuine need in the world. They are representative ambassadors of those who are in need. And so if you've ever wondered why we want God to deepen our ability to, change, to, to create change uh, in the global orphan crisis, this is why. This is why this is a particular value for us, a vision for us. And Isaiah is telling us that a life of genuine worship always leads us to pursue the well-being of others. And so in verses 16, 17, if we're to kind of take this into New Testament terminology, because remember, we're not under the old covenant, we get to read these verses now, understanding the full weight and the magnitude of, of Jesus, right? He's saying, listen, uh, if, if you understand your faith in the New Testament, then you know to be a Christian, one of the identities we receive from Christ is that we are a son and a daughter of God, right? You guys, are, your sons are daughters of God when you're in him. And the idea of that is that you have been made right with God because of who Jesus is. And part of the responsibility that the Christian carries when they are made right with God is to commit their lives to help others who are trying to find rightness and rest in God, that they're supposed to commit their lives to that. That grace that they receive is now a grace that is to be perpetuated. Teachings like this remind us, both old and even in the New Testament, that God has designed the world to function in a very, a very particular way. And when it comes to people, he wants people equally valued. All people, no matter how broken they are, are made in the image of God. They are loved by God. The reality of, of what God says about people is one thing, but the, the, the reality of what this looks like in our world is very different. The, the expressed desire that God has for people to be valued is not necessarily how we see this on earth. It just isn't always true. There's often a great inequality leveled on people, especially the fatherless and the orphan, and that's why the Bible speaks so particularly to this issue in so many places. So think about this. In God's plan, there wasn't supposed to be pain and suffering on earth. There wasn't supposed to be sorrow and hardship. There wasn't supposed to be a need as much as we value this for an adoption ministry at our church because it was always his perfect desire that parents would be able uh, to, to love and keep the kids that they have. That's, his, that's the desire. But that is not the current reality of our world. And so as Christians, this is put before us and we have to think about this. As Christians, we, we long and we pray for the day, at least we should be longing and praying for the day, when Jesus does bring his perfect justice to earth, when Jesus does mend all sorrow and all hurt, when he makes things right. We know that day is, is before us in the same way people anticipated the coming of Jesus in the first century world, their Messiah, we expect him again to return. And it's at that point that he will once and for all truly remedy all these things. He's going to make all things right. 
And we are supposed to, as believers, long and pray for that day. But that is not all we are supposed to be doing as believers. Longing and praying has a comma, a comma after that. According to Isaiah and a myriad of teachings in the New Testament, some that we'll touch on next week, we should pray for the day that God makes all things right. We should long and want that day to happen. But in the meantime, we are commanded to labor to that end. It's not a passive prayer. It's a prayer that we basically ask God to fuel our hearts to make a difference in the world. We want to identify where the, where the Holy Spirit is working so we can follow in the coattails of the way that he's working. We should pray. We should long. But we also have to labor. We cannot disconnect those things in the Christian faith. Just look at what Isaiah says, and let's think about this in light of the cross. He tells us to seek justice, to do good, to do right. And he's talking about the oppressed here. In the same way God sought justice for us on the cross while we were spiritually fatherless and oppressed by sin. This is the great irony for those in the faith that don't value teachings like this. They will readily receive the fact that God has freed us from the oppression of sin. He has done away with the greatest yoke that humanity has ever suffered on its, around its neck. We receive that with open arms, but then we close up those arms and we will not pass them on to others. I mean, look at what he says here. Seek and do. He's not saying, like, if you get around to it, if there's a thought, you know, if you're free on a Tuesday, that's not the idea that is here. Seek and do. They are not passive words. They are active commands. And they charge us to carry Jesus' grace to meet injustice and oppression where it exists, in great ways and in the little ways that you might see them in your world, where there is a coworker who is, you know, shunned or maybe not looked poorly upon, where there are friends in your life who, are, who don't have as many friends of you. There are all kinds of ways that we can care for people like this. They're not always big rock issues, but there are also big rock issues. Wherever there is an evidence of a marginalized person, we, the passages like this remind us that we have been set apart to bring Jesus's compassion and freedom to the people of the earth who are without them, to the marginalized, to the voiceless, to those without an advocate in life. Because Jesus is our advocate. He literally is called that. The Holy Spirit becomes our advocate. These things that we now have, their graces from the faith that God gives us, we're meant to show these to other people. We now, if you will, are the voice of the prophet calling out in the wilderness and proclaiming people to come to the light and the goodness and the grace of God. And this is why the real, the, the danger, the real danger of ritualistic worship, the root of it is that it unplugs the Christian from God. They have the form of godliness, but they don't have the heart of God. And here we learn that God is the source of all justice and compassion. He invented that stuff, and one day we'll correct it permanently. And so to disconnect ourselves from God in this way, it breeds a calloused, selfish, rigid brand of religion, one that is minimally, if at all, concerned with pursuing the well-being of other people. And so it is to this that Isaiah rather bluntly says, stop doing that. He's not one for mincing words. Stop and start loving God and caring for people like God does. In fact, I'll take this a step further. He's saying, start loving people the way God loves you. Think about that. Simply put, God has always loved and made a great sacrifice for those who are spiritually and physically helpless. The nature of the gospel teaches us this, and Jesus is the greatest evidence of this. And that's why a genuine love for God has to create the same types of compassion in us. Not saying we can meet every need and solve every problem, but a Christian who dwells in the compassion and grace of God but has none in their lives for those without it, there is something incredibly incongruent about that, and it has to be looked at. And so in verse 17, kind of drawing to a close here, verse 17 teaches us that the object, one of the greatest objects of God's compassion, and consequently ours, is now the orphan. This is the place he, he pours love out upon people. And it is because when it comes to the helpless, they are really at the top of the list. Think about your own children, you know, how vulnerable they can be if you have kids. You know, I have a, a nine-year-old and two, uh, a six and a five-year-old. 
and they uh, they really are helpless in a lot of ways. Like if we don't feed them, like my kids are starting to learn how to cook. My son does eggs and stuff on the stove, but I can't like tell my five-year-olds like to, to run to Publix and pick up $100 worth of groceries to make the family function. There is a real need for them to be cared for and protected, even those who are in healthy, loving, thriving families. But think about those who are not. They're subjected to some really crazy things in our world. Some stuff we'll get into next week. And so and when we think about the importance of the orphan, I'd, I'd like to close this talk by giving you guys a few practical ways that you can get the plight of the orphan on your heart and mind at restoration. This is an important uh, value for us. It's an important vision statement for us. We want to work in this area. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary, and we highlighted the fact that this is a place we want God to grow our, our missional efforts in. Before I get into this, though, I want to say that I want to call your attention to, to remember something. If you're here for the first time, this will be new to you. If you're not, hopefully you know this. As we discuss this, I have said before that our main goal in caring for orphans is not a naive expectation that each and every person at our church is going to adopt a child. I think that would be wonderful and welcomed. We, we pray for that. But that's not what uh, supporting an orphan ministry actually means. What we're trying to do here is to build a culture, to create a culture at restoration where each and every person is engaged in the problem, where they support those who do adopt. Even if you're not adopting, you might be the person who's praying for those who are adopting. You're, you're a shoulder to cry on or a support system. In that way, it really does become a ministry of the whole church. The, the, the command here is not to just have everybody go out and adopt, although that would be wonderful. The reality is, is we're creating a culture, a familial culture for this. So having said that, every time that I, I talk about caring for the orphan at restoration, I also point out that these teachings are not meant to narrowly focus uh, our attention on the orphan and the widow alone. They're meant to point our attention to it, but not to the blinders of all the other stuff going on and around us and in our lives. This is a good and a right emphasis we have at our church. We can't solve every problem, so we have to be kind of clear and particular about the places we can make change in. This is a good and a right emphasis we have at our church. But teachings like this are not meant to narrow us. They're meant to broaden our focus to the fact that there are people all around us who have legitimate need in our world. And so as we close, I'm going to talk about some ways you can seek justice and do right by supporting adoption. We want to get that out there. But also, uh, I want to mention some other opportunities you can engage in to do good things for Jesus. So here they are. Here are some ways you can seek justice and do right at restoration. The first, perhaps the easiest, and one of the most profound, is you can pray, right? You can pray for God to move the heart of every person connected to our church and and God's global church to the plight of the orphan. Because nothing happens in God's kingdom uh, without prayer. We have to be praying and sweating to bring this stuff about. And so, so the bottom line in this is this. There are a lot of orphan kids in our world, in our country, that need parents. And no great movement of God ever happens locally or abroad apart from his people praying for it. And so the, the first thing that all of us really can do is to start praying for God to grant us a favor and, awareness, and an awareness in this initiative. People will not, if they don't know this is in scripture, if they don't know this is a need, they're very unlikely to do anything about this. So we've got to pray for God to open our eyes to this issue and pray that God would open the eyes of others to it. Pray. Secondly, offer your particular skill to the orphan ministry. Now this is going to connect to service, but I have said before that our adoption initiative, much like a lot of the things that we do at, a church, at our church, our mission emphases, they require a whole host of organizational and administrative skills. And so some of you might never actually adopt a child but you can use certain skills in your life to help somebody who is. 
For example, growing our orphan ministry will require us to be able to conduct interviews, apply scholarships, do research, help to get people connected to the places they need to go. Um, we, we have a system for this in place, but it has to grow with the church as it grows. So it's fair to say we're always designing this system. So if you have an interest in helping out, if you have an entrepreneurial vibe, you should let us know this. Because you likely, think about this, you likely have a skill in an area of your life right now that has nothing to do with adoption that can be used to move the adoption ministry forward. So think about whether or not you have a skill or ability that, that can be used to not, not even maybe adopt, although that would be wonderful, but to, to push that, that movement forward. Thirdly, uh, you can give to the orphan fund. Uh, in case you don't know, we have a scholarship fund here to bring uh, help to families that, that want to adopt. And that too, that fund, we want it to grow as the church grows. Uh, as we were support raising, we saved a third, uh, raised a third, a third, and got scholarships through the third. And so what we found is as we were talking to people, we met a lot of people who really did not have a desire to adopt a child, but they had the financial resources to actually help someone adopt. That's how they wanted to help adopt. And so whether or not we like it, uh, money is a huge part of getting an at-risk child out of the system and into your living room. And so if you're one of the people I just mentioned, if, you just want to, if you're not sure about adopting, but you believe in this uh, and you want to support those who adopt, you can give to that fund. Those monies go in that fund and they're released to people if and when they want to adopt. adopt. They're specialized funds for that particular purpose. We try to put money in it and we obviously uh, talk about these things when they come up in our teaching schedule. So giving of your skill and certainly of of funds is an important and and a good way to help. Another way, another on-ramp is to adopt a compassion child. Um, For years, we have had a a partnership with Compassion International, which helps to to financially support at-risk children. I think right now my family and I pays about $36 a month to support a, a child in South America. And what we found with compassion is that it does become a bit of a gateway for people to take next steps with adoption. The first time you are made aware of the needs of a child in another place of the world, you start helping that out, the more you realize just how great the needs of other children around the world are. And so it really is a very small sacrifice on our end. It's probably what most of us spend at Starbucks a month. If you believe in that thing, I cannot support that juggernaut Starbucks. I brew my own coffee. I just can't do it. That's a sermon for next week, the woes of Starbucks. Uh, It really is a small sacrifice on our end that makes a huge difference in the life of a child, okay? And so we entered this partnership with compassion, with the hope of creating an awareness to help support the global orphan crisis. Our kids' ministry actually has compassion children they adopt so that as they are growing up as kids, they recognize there are other kids um, around the world that might not have the kind of love, care, and support that they have from their homes and from their families. It's a great way for you to help your, uh, play your part in helping to support those who have need by creating an awareness uh, of the need in our church family. So adopt a compassion child. And you can let us know in the office about that. We'll help you figure that out if that's something you're interested in looking at. Lastly, what I would say is, and give me a minute to connect the dot on this, but I would say if you want to seek justice and do right, then consider whether or not it's time for you to get plugged into a community group. Um, Because if you want to make a difference in your community, one of the greatest ways we attempt to do that as a church is in our, our community group. And so in case you don't know, a community group, or CG as we call them here, these are small group families that meet at various times and places throughout the week for three specific reasons. They have three emphasis points. And these emphasis points are what set apart our CG ministry from a traditional small group ministry. If you have a church background, home groups, cell groups, whatever they are, there's a distinction between our community group and the traditional nature of some of those things. And here's what they are. A fully formed community group has to be doing three things for it to be what we consider to be a vibrant, functioning community group. 
if you're a CG leader, you'll know this. We call these the three S's. They're charged to socialize, study, and serve. Groups don't start with these three things in place, but for a group to really be a CG, they have to be laboring towards this end. By socializing, we mean they have to develop genuine relationships with each other. One of, the, one of the greatest evangelistic tools the kingdom of God has is when God's people learn to love each other deeply and they learn to share that love with, other, with others. So that relational connection, that socialization is very important. A group is also called to study. What we want them to be growing in is, uh, is their knowledge of, of God's word and, and what his, his plan for their life is. And so while groups have the freedom to study uh, a myriad of things, most of our groups, if they are studying, they use uh, sermon-based questions that we write as a church based on what I talk about on Sundays so that people have a chance. Obviously, you don't get to talk back to me here on Sundays, at least not often. So our groups provide a platform for people to be able to ask anything about the things that they have going on in their lives or the things that are said from the front of this room. We want this to be as dialogical as, pro- as possible. The groups provide that studying platform. And lastly, the thing that I want to touch on right now is groups are charged to serve. This is what separates us from an in-home Bible study. Groups are charged to serve. They are asked to figure out um, what it means to see your group, not just as a small group of people studying the Bible, but a small group of people studying the Bible and loving each other so that they can find a particular group of people in their community, whatever that is, that's up to the groups, that they can bless on a regular basis. In other words, where are they showing the light of Jesus in the world that they are living in? Serving is imperative to the health of a group. It's imperative to the health of our church. And it really is uh, something that we're, we're making sure is healthy and robust in everything we're doing as we, as we move forward. It's one of the things that helps us to stay away from the, the rituals of religion. And so if you're not in a community group, I want to ask you to consider that, getting plugged into one. If you want to bless people and do right, this is a great place for you to come in and start figuring out how to do that. Not alone, but with other people. And if you are in a community group, I want to issue you this challenge over these next weeks. Um, If you are in a community group, ask your group over these next weeks if you're seeking justice and doing good in your community. And so as we close, I hope this talk on why we care for the marginalized through adoption, it will cause you to reflect more deeply on your redemptive adoption in Jesus. You are a son or daughter of God because Jesus came to earth and gave himself up for us. I hope you will reflect on the connection between being adopted in Jesus and and what it means for us to pray about what our role in caring for the orphan is. I pray you receive Isaiah's teaching clearly that a a true love and worship for God should align our hearts with the same burdens and agenda God has for the people of our world. That's what sanctification is. Our hearts, the desires of our hearts, our lives, over the years they become more in line with who our Father in heaven is. We become mirror image reflections of who he is on earth. And so as we move into response time, ask yourself, if you are an adopted son or daughter of God, ask that. If you're here today hearing about grace, but you don't know what that means or you've not experienced it, ask what is keeping you from receiving the love of God in Christ. If you are in Christ, ask yourself this. Are you worshiping him with a robust heart or or ritual words and deeds? Are you letting his love for you define how you care for those who have need in the very small ways, but also for those who are literally right now functioning under oppression in in areas of the world and very likely in our city. Ask yourself in all these things, what is Jesus saying to you about this and what is it you intend to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you.